Hi, welcome to another episode of Talking Studio, the College of Fine Arts podcast. My name is Kelly Respeck, and today I'm talking with Sky Robinson Hillis. She's an MFA playwriting student in the School of Theater, and we're going to talk about a new project she has, um, and also more importantly about the process that playwrights go through when they create a new play and what kind of seed is planted and how that develops into uh, hopefully one day an opening night. So welcome. Hi, Sky. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, um, where you went to undergrad and how, uh, how you got to Ohio University in the playwriting? Sure. So it was sort of a circuitous um, <laughs> uh, process. I was originally a politics major my first year of college. I went to school in DC and then I, I had sort of always had this what I thought was a backup plan of becoming a screenwriter. Um, turns out not a backup plan. Um, and I I then moved to Chicago, to Columbia, to um, study film and screenwriting. And I was always a big theater fan, but I didn't, um, I didn't understand the ins and outs of theater. I didn't know what I could do within the theater. And then I started um, seeing more theater in Chicago, being what is the capital, the you know, the theater capital of the United States, believe it or not. Um, and I started understanding more about how theater works. And at the same time, I had a screenwriting professor who told me that my strengths were in character and dialogue, which is not especially useful for a screenwriter, I learned. Um, film, at least at the time, it's, I think film is changing probably, um, but dialogue and character was not the, the thing. Um, it was all about action and plot, which were not my strengths and still aren't my strengths. Um, so I, it was recommended that I start to think about becoming a playwright. And I thought, oh, that's genius. I love theater. I probably love theater more than film. Why hadn't I thought about that before? So I ended up um, transferring to the theater department at Columbia. So and, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. Why hadn't you thought of that before? What, what do you think is, that, is behind that? I have no idea. I think it, I think there was something about theater that when I was growing up seemed much more inaccessible to me than film did because, you know, I could go to the video store and watch as many uh, films as I wanted to as a kid. Remember video stores? Um, <laughs> but I couldn't see as many shows as I wanted to, you know? Um, I was in, in high school, I lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia and I don't have a very artistic family. So it just wasn't that much of a part of my life. Um, so I don't think I ever thought about you know, like I said, the ins and outs of theater and what there was to do in it. But funnily enough, when I um, when I transferred to the theater department at Columbia, um, I was a directing major and not a playwriting major because at the time, this has changed, um, at the time, the playwriting program was within the fiction writing department. And yes, yes. <laughs> um, very, very interesting. Very interesting. Yes, uh, that has changed, as I said, but um, I was not interested in being a part of that. And I thought that I could benefit more from um, being in the directing department and learning because as a director, you know, you learn everything. You learn every little, every in and out of theater. So I did that and I continued to write plays and take playwriting classes while I was doing that. 
Um, so I have a degree in directing uh, as well. Okay, okay. So then when did you arrive at Ohio University? Last year, this is my second out of three years. Okay, okay. Um, so um, like everything, um, projects, artistic projects and all other kinds of projects take money to 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 launch. Um, tell me about the um, uh, your process and, and applying for the what you eventually won, which will allow this work to move forward. The Anthony Trisolini Graduate Fellowship Award. Well, I will say that I am very lucky to be in a program that very much prioritizes um, applying for grants. And so it is, I mean, it's more or less a part of our syllabus in our second year that we work on the Trisolini grant. Um, so we are we are required to apply <laughs> or or to um, put forth some kind of application. You know, it's um, everyone in the second year, there are three playwrights in each year. So um, everyone in their second year is required to um, write up a proposal. We we work on them actually in class together and get feedback. Um, and we help each other. And then the the head of our program, Charles Smith, will choose one of the three proposals to move forward within our program. Um, and so then you start doing the rest of the work, which is gathering um, letters of recommendation, which you need three of, um, and sort of putting together the rest of the application outside of the proposal. And then it goes to the head of the School of Theater um, who chooses who chooses from any of the graduate students to put forth on behalf of the School of Theater. So there are several levels that you have to, hoops that you jump through before you actually even get submitted to the Trisolini committee. Um, so I, I think the, the application was due in February and I had been working on it since September because of that. And what what do you think you learned and what do you think you took away from that entire experience just as a from a professional perspective? Well, I think I think the most difficult thing about it was to try to focus on this proposal and create create the world of this play while also working on my current draft of a, of a play, you know? So it's hard to take yourself out of what you're currently working on to propose the next thing that you're working on. And of course, as a playwright, you have to do things like that all the time. You know, you might get a commission from another theater while you're working on something else. And so it certainly was helpful in, in getting me to, to be a little bit better at multitasking, which is not always my skill. Um, but it, it, is, it is a difficult process actually to, to separate different works from each other when you're <laughs> when you're in them. The current play that I'm working on is, I wouldn't say it's similar to um, the Martha Mitchell effect, but it's also historically based. And it um, it's, uh, it's about the Hollywood blacklist. So it has that sort of political relevance that the Martha Mitchell effect also has. So separating those was was the big challenge, but I it was it was useful in that way. Good. Um, okay, so that kind of gives us a nice little segue um, to this body of work that you've um, are, are working on um, that that you now have now that you have this funding from the Anthony Trisolini Graduate Fellowship. Um, tell us a little bit about um, 
I guess, the origin story of how you found out about this story. So, um, <laughs> funnily enough, to create this piece of media, I found out about the story from another piece of media, um, which I think is often the way. Um, there's a podcast called the Slow Burn Podcast, and the first season of it was about Watergate. And I think actually the very first episode of this podcast about Watergate was entitled Martha Mitchell. And um, and I had no idea who Martha Mitchell was. And I can, you know, I'm a big history nerd and I'm a big feminist nerd and I love, you know, I'm very into women in history. And uh, I had never heard of Martha Mitchell. So from the get go, I was like, wait, stop, <laughs> rewind. Let me listen to this three more times. Um, and it does a great job of, I think, succinctly telling this, the story of Martha Mitchell and her role within the Watergate scandal um, while making, while not giving you every tiny detail. You want to go in and research and learn more. Um, I agree. I think it does a great job in essentially, I'm just going to put this right here mm -hmm. and, and I know other people will unpack it. But this was a, this is this is sort of a, a classic. This is how we dismiss history can sometimes right. dismiss women. But this is not the point of my podcast. But I'm gonna leave that there. So I'm I'm sure that the right. um, the, the the guy who did it, uh, it was well aware of that. And I do I agree. I've listened to this series, and it's very much like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was sort of the perfect audience for that because I'm always looking for for stories like that about women in history. And I've picked up a few throughout the years, probably largely from podcasts because I listen to so many of them. And, you know, I'm the person who's totally picking up what they're putting down and then running with it. Um, and when I did that, when I picked it up and ran with it, what I learned was that there is not very much to research on the Internet about Martha Mitchell. And that just sort of made things snowball inside me because that's absurd. How is how how are there not a hundred books about Martha Mitchell? Um, so I started kind of scouring the internet, and and I knew you know even just based on the Slow Burn podcast that this was a character that I could write that this was a character that is very much within my wheelhouse. And so the next step for that was I thought, okay, I'm gonna write a play about this. So I went to um, Alden, Alden Library, and I set up a meeting with Lorraine Wachna and to so that she could, with her wizardry, um, help me find more information on Martha Mitchell. Um, and we Lorraine and I spent, this was about a year ago, uh, Lorraine and I spent, or we ha I think we had a half an hour appointment and we spent two hours <laughs> scouring the internet and the, you know, every resource that she has um, looking for more information on Martha Mitchell. And we both kind of just got like, what is happening? How, why is this so hard? So I just want to break in and say, without ruining the play, mm -hmm. Can you give our listeners a little bit of uh, why you're reacting in this in this incredible way um, and, and just kind of give people sort of maybe what the press told people she was and 
and and of course there's always a story behind what the press how press portray women especially in politics yes so martha mitchell was the hard drinking southern wife of john mitchell um who during nixon's administration was the attorney general and then became the chairman of Nixon's re-election campaign. So he was about as close to Nixon as as one got. Um, And when Watergate happened, she was actually, (laughs) she was actually the one who broke the story. So Martha Mitchell was always kind of, she was a big town gossip. She was always on the phone with journalists. Um, She was just always calling them from her living room with a glass of bourbon in one hand and the phone in the other hand repeating what she'd heard from downstairs just for fun most of the time because it hadn't been nothing had been as serious as this up until now um and she when watergate happened they were in california at an event um for nixon's re-election campaign and uh the break-in happened while they were there and john mitchell immediately went back to D.C., didn't give her an explanation, told her to stay in California. No explanation. What he also did was um, assign a bodyguard to her to make sure that she stayed in California and to keep her away from any newspapers. This failed, (laughs) and (laughs) she found a copy of the L.A. Times, which, of course, had the Watergate break-in right on the cover. And um, the James McCord, uh, who was one of the folks who broke into um, the Watergate offices, had been her personal bodyguard years earlier, had driven her daughter to school. So she immediately knew from the headline of the LA Times that they were involved, that her husband was involved, that Nixon was involved. And this then the bodyguard that was assigned to her literally <laughs> um injected her with sodium pentothal knocked her out and she was more or less kidnapped in los angeles and held there against her will for days so that she could not release this story to the public so that she could not get on the phone but in fact there she did at one point get on the phone with helen thomas and start to tell Helen Thomas, and then Helen Thomas tells this story. She could Helen, hear Helen Thomas being the UPI. Yes, reporter one of, of the fame. top journalists yes. in DC at the time, who was uh, Martha Mitchell's number one call whenever there was <laughs> something to tell. Um, that she could hear Martha Mitchell saying, "No, get away from me! No, no, no!" And then the phone was ripped out of the wall, um, and that was it. So. Um, <laughs> Martha Mitchell was actually the first person to break Watergate. And because she was the wife of John Mitchell, because she had a reputation for kind of drinking and gossiping, she was essentially gaslighted. I mean, she was um, she was relegated to like page six of the newspaper uh, and no one paid any attention. And it's sort of horrifying to to think about. Um, but actually now Nixon, uh, in his famous Frost Nixon interviews, you know, six or seven years after Watergate, um, he has said on record that Watergate would not have happened if it weren't for Martha Mitchell. 
Nixon himself says this, and yet no one knows who she is. So, so this is really this. So, so as somebody who followed politics and then became a way to bring, in in some ways, I think plays are a way to bring what's happening in our world in an artistic through an artistic lens to life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but I, it always seems like we're re- seeing a reflection of ourselves on the stage there inside of a story. Mm-hmm. This this must have been something that you tucked away and said, okay. One day I'm going to. This is this is going to be what I'm going to do. Or what? Had you already been here uh, at Ohio University, and then were looking for looking for topics to do, or did you come here knowing this is the play you wanted to write? I found it while I was here. So it was last year that I discovered it, and that's when I immediately, you know, went to Lorraine about a year ago, and I was thinking that I might write it for my second year play. And then the more research I did, the more I realized that it was going to be sort of a larger project than that, and that I might want to save it for my thesis in my third year. And that would also give me the opportunity to um, try to pitch it to the Trislaney Fellowship to because it's a larger project and will require so much more of my time um, to see if I could get some money behind it as well. Um, so I pushed it to the next year. Okay. Okay, so that that sort of all fell in line, and 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 I don't know whether you feel really fortunate that this whole thing just kind of happened, or if this is what this is how it works inside of the world of a playwright's mind. And maybe you can unpack that for our listeners, saying, you know, um, there's 50 of these in my files in my brain that I want to write about. This one just emerged as one that. I thought would be a great fit for this program and for these for this type of funding and things like that. Um, here's my dog. Let's <laughs> her in. Um, and uh, so I'd like you to unpack for us a little bit more about the, the playwrights process when they when they start discovering new new um, types of plays and new new type of work and how does that work just for just for a lay audience. Yeah, um, I think it's. I think it's different for a lot of playwrights, but um, and I think my process is changing because before I came to OU, I was sort of, I would get an idea and I would start writing it just kind of immediately. And um, that can work well and it can also crash and burn pretty quickly. Um, when I came here, um, essentially what we do in this program is we write one play a year. So you have your first year play, second year play, third year play, which is your thesis. Um, so you can't, so if you're working on a play, you can't just kind of be like, oh, pause, let me start working on this other play because I got this earworm, you know, um, you have to wait. <laughs> and so that is now part of my process. I had to wait. I had to think about how it would work. I had to come up with a pitch and a proposal before I ever started writing the play. And that's something that I had never done before. I, because because I am most interested in character and not as interested in plot, I have a tendency to just immediately start typing and, you know, listening for their voice and figuring out what the character's voice is, um, which is something I couldn't really do this time. So, um, does that answer your question? I think I've lost the thread. <laughs> yeah, no, that answers the question because I think you said your process is changing and yeah. based on what you're required to do in the program, you had to think of it in a different way. And and now that you've done that and you've sort of become full circle and you've got your thesis play and you've got it paid for, are you 
are you glad it kind of worked out the way it did? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, and also because of the other play that I had been working on at the time, because the sky of yore would have probably abandoned that play <laughs> and probably never come back to it or for years wouldn't have come back to it. Um, and now it's, I ha now I have this complete play that I can now, I can move on now and now give my full attention to this Martha Mitchell play without sacrificing the, <laughs> the play that I'd been working on at the time. Um, and I think it's, I think it's also the perfect play to do um, as a thesis because it is, you know, a larger undertaking and it's going to require a lot of work and research, which is also great for a thesis. Um, so I think timing wise, it has, been hugely beneficial for me to wait and to save it for my thesis and to be able to um, have the fellowship as well. Okay. Um, all right, let's for, for our last process, I, um, let's talk a little bit about research. I'm so glad to know that you have an interest in, in, in history and politics just as a foundation to who you are. Does that then make the research process um, I mean, I want to say it will be a breeze, but I mean, uh, a little bit more less uh, daunting because I imagine with there being not much on Martha Mitchell, which is the way history generally treats women of 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 importance. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about what your approach will be? And obviously, with the help of the wonderful Lorraine Wachna, yeah. um, who those research librarians are crucial, I'm sure, for somebody like yeah. you. Um, and, and to many more of us, but um, yeah, tell us a little bit about how your what your approach is going to be and and uh, how it's going to work out. Well, a couple of things, I guess. the The first thing I'll say is that um, this kind of drops us back into our current world. Is that it's going to be a lot harder um, now that we are in this kind of self isolation world where libraries are not open. Um, so. <laughs> I, I have to admit I'm a little bit nervous for because now it's time for me to really start diving into this play because I've just finished the other play. Um, and this is the time when I would now be, you know, meeting with Lorraine again and taking every book in the world out of the library. Uh, and I can't. So and hopefully that will start to change soon. You know, we don't know what the timeline is here in our in our current uh, world of pandemic, but um, I am I am nervous because I think most of the materials that I'm going to need for this um, for this play are going to come from physical books and not from scouring Google. So and that I can't do at home. I can't do that from my computer. So the first step for me now is to actually to meet with Lorraine and to say, what on earth do you think I should do now? You know, how do we how do we approach this in our current world? Um, so there's that. Um, and then the other thing is a lot of the research that I will have to do because there is so little that is specifically about Martha Mitchell is is looking at books and documents that are about other people that mention her sort of tangentially and piecing things together. So that's why the, the research is sort of vast for that reason, because I have to dig through other unrelated documents to try to find that one little piece of information that I really need. And as Lorraine and I found last year, we, we happened upon all these like 
uh, uh, redacted FBI documents that, you know, makes you want to keep going, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, now now we're into something. Um, so it's it's sifting through all of that. And so it's a it's a fun process, but it's also kind of an arduous and time consuming process. And so in that sense, it's different from a lot of um, a lot of research processes that I've been in before. So it'll and I'm used to, I think, as you said, because I'm a big history nerd um, and I'm also a dramaturg who is the and if you don't know what a dramaturg is, the short version of it is it's the person who is kind of the research captain in the rehearsal room um, for an established play. Um, so I've been the research captain before and I, you know, I'm pretty well versed in it, but this is going to be very different, I think, than what I'm used to. So, so what kind of people can you imagine if you had your, 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 all your wishes come true when, when there's not enough, when there's not a lot of content that's published about her, mm-hmm. what kind of people would you want to interviewed or you know it's almost ironic that um this may be something i've never really thought about before as a as a journalist but researching a play and for a playwright is much like researching a story for a journalist like there's going to be people that are going to need i need i'm going to need to talk to to really inform the story so that a i get it right and b um i'm i'm not um, I'm re- I'm adding something that maybe somebody didn't understand, or maybe the understanding of this topic has changed over time as our culture has changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, who, what kind of people do you feel as though you're going to be in contact with? I think uh, I think firsthand accounts are going to be key. Um, you know, folks who were involved, even tangentially, uh, in the Watergate scandal, or who were journalists at the time, or you know, perhaps are you know, and still are, hopefully. Um, And because also a part of my play is not just about Martha Mitchell, but it's about the female journalists at the time. So I'm looking at, um, of course, Catherine Graham, who was the publisher of the um, Washington Post at the time that Watergate broke and Woodward and Bernstein's boss. Um, So I'm looking at her. I'm looking at actually Leslie Stahl, who was also um, involved in the Slow Burn podcast. And I learned from the Slow Burn podcast about her involvement. Um, And I think no one really talks about that and so um focusing on the journalism aspect as much as i can um i had hoped there there were a couple other things that i had applied for and got into the final round for that have sort of that would have allowed me to potentially go to dc and do some kind of in-person research and um those things i think may or may not still exist because of because of the our current world. So um, there were a lot of things that I had hoped to be able to do this summer that I think I am likely not going to be able to do. And a lot of that is it's going to affect my ability to get firsthand accounts. So um, a lot of that's up in the air. But I do think that um, speaking to people individually is is going to be a key form of research for me. Is that something that's not unusual for a playwright to do? Speak to to first person account type people to really just, especially if it's a play based on historical fact or or history that we didn't know existed, was there the whole time? Yeah, I think it depends on the kind of play you're writing. 
um, how factual you want it to be, because a lot of playwrights will take an event in history and reimagine it, you know, and in that case, you would do research, of course, you would do baseline research, but it but it doesn't matter so much how accurate it is because uh, you're creating your own world. And as a playwright, even if you are trying to be as accurate as possible, you're still creating your own world. The Martha Mitchell that I write will be my Martha Mitchell. You know, it's not going to be, I'm not writing a docudrama. So, you know, I'm not going to take actual words that came out of her mouth and ask an actor to say it. I'm creating my own characters, my own versions of these people, my own version of this world. And um, so, I think it does depend on how accurate you're trying to be. I mean, you have something like the Laramie Project, which is word for word, right? And um, so that would be a much more specific type of firsthand account research. This would just be to sort of help me understand as much as I can about the world. And then I kind of take it and run, if that makes sense. So right. I wouldn't say it's unusual, but I would say it. it depends on the type of play that you're writing because history plays are not necessarily you know like something you would see on the history channel they are a world that we create as playwrights that is our own and and would you say that the people that you imagine okay so let me ask you this question let me back up here when a playwright writes a play when you write a play is part of your process imagining certain actors embodying those roles and does that help you get yeah. closer to how this world this person would sound in the world that you are creating again you're not trying yeah. to do a history you're just okay yes um for me yes i know um every every playwright is is different on this account and this is something that i think we actually all talk about a lot when we get together is um you know there are playwrights who write specifically for actors and with actors in mind um and there are playwrights who don't because they may never get those actors you know um i have always written specifically with actors in mind so it helps me to hear their voices and their cadence and apply it to a character so in this case as i start to form martha mitchell i will absolutely have an actor in my brain and it might be an actor i know or it might be an actor who you know exists in hollywood <laughs> it just depends on what you know, what kind of aligns with what I'm doing. And that will absolutely help me to write her um, because I have to be able to hear it to, to write her. So take us through the last parts of this process um, uh, in the playwriting world. So, and again, we this is a very broad sort of like, if you've never heard of playwriting, this mm -hmm. is the podcast episode to listen to. Um, you do all your research, you write the play, you're happy with it and then you graduate, and then what happens? I know that people that make films, they shop them around. People who write books, they shop to publishers. What happens to a play after it's written and done? Oh, I guess it's sort of similar. Um, we do our version of shopping, which is submitting. Um, we submit to opportunities, to festivals, to development, um, to development opportunities, sometimes to theaters, but usually not directly to theaters. Um, they're we have a very complicated gatekeeping um, situation in theater, which maybe will be changing after all of this dies down. Um, but uh, it's similar, you know, you have to, you just keep sending the play out and waiting to get bites. You know, you try to send it to, um, to artists that you have a personal relationship with who can help you make it better in the meantime. 
Um, so you try to keep working on it, but it is, there is a lot of waiting and you might write a play and absolutely nothing will happen with it for years. And by the time you get back to it, you're like, hmm, what was I, what was this? I don't remember writing the scene. And, it, and you have to sort of re, uh, whatever, you have to look at it again and, and try to remember who you were when you wrote that. Um, that's so great. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard because it can take a very, very long time. And I think the difference for, you know, say a screenwriter is that a screenwriter will sell their screenplay. And then almost all the, almost every time they have nothing to do with it from that point on. Which is one of the reasons that I strayed away from screenwriting. Um, but in our case, if we get a bite on a play, we jump back in. Um, so it's it's arduous and it's sometimes very uh, discouraging because it takes so long because new plays uh, don't make money. So nobody <laughs> wants to do them. Surprise, surprise, go see new plays. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So do you think this is going to go down in history um, as far as you can tell as one of your favorites, sort of like one of your favorite plays that you've ever written? I have no idea. I hope so. You always hope so. Um, but I have no idea. <laughs> and that, that's exciting, exciting for you, right? It's not, it's not scary. It is scary. <laughs> it is scary because you spend so much time on something and you could get to the end and be like, ah, this is crap. <laughs> this is really crap. Um, you always hope that that won't be the case and you try to work to make that not the case, but you don't know. I mean, it's art. Sometimes art sucks, but sometimes it's amazing. And it's, you just have to kind of cross your fingers and do your best. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. It's, it's a great time talking to you. And uh, I wish you well and be well and stay well. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much.